who are we influencing? We brought out that side of the equation. And the Apostle Paul says, he wants to be their influence, right? Anything that's godly, anything that's holy, anything that's, that's true and just and good and pure and biblical, he wants to, that to be what's influencing them. And then he asks the question, who's influencing you? And that's where he comes out with that statement there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, don't be yoked with unbelievers. He's talking all about influence and, and how we can affect other people, but how it also affects us. Uh, as part of that admonition there, and as part of that teaching that he shared with them so many centuries ago, Paul asked these five rhetorical questions in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And it's the last of those questions, I didn't spend a lot of time on it last week, but it's the last of those questions that has really uh, made me think and, and pray and muse. I've been musing on that particular question this week. That last question comes with a built-in contrast of biblical truth. Being confronted with this truth is the difference between growing spiritually or shrinking. It's the difference between getting stronger or getting weaker. And it's the difference between getting unstuck in our faith, if, if we're kind of, kind of just spinning our wheels a little bit, or continuing to stay stuck, continuing to, to uh, kind of spin in the mud, as it were. So the Apostle Paul's last question that I've been thinking on is in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. And it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement has the temple of God got with idols. Another verse that I shared uh, this week at our all-board meeting was out of 1 John chapter 5. And 1 John just gives a short little piece, but it's super powerful. 1 John 5.21, shortened to the point, it says, little children. Little children. He addresses us as little children. Let me just flip there real quick. First John 5, 21 says, <clears throat> Little children, keep yourselves, that's the word, little children, keep yourselves from idols. A short but powerful uh, admonition at the last of, uh, of the book. He just simply says, keep yourselves from idols. Paul says in the same way, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? See, it's a problem that it stretches back Clear to the beginning. It's a problem that stretches clear back to the Garden of Eden and, and the fall of mankind into sin. And created in the heart of every person is this desire to connect with the Creator. When Adam and Eve gave into temptation and disobeyed God, humanity and creation was subject, <clears throat> subjected to the control of Satan. Now, there's some of us that have been studying through the book of Genesis, and that's awesome. It's great. And, and we've been talking a little bit, and it's actually Josh and some of his friends have been, we've been talking, uh, I've been talking with Josh a little bit on the side, just sharing what God's saying to each of us and, and whatnot, and talking about those, the, the mandates that God has given to Adam and Eve. Those mandates don't go away. But they are deeply and forever impacted because they chose to disobey God. And everything from that point f forward got harder. It got more difficult. And Tammy and I, we've, for whatever reason, okay, here's how it goes. So, <clears throat> we're empty nesters, first year, we're empty nesters, and we have the biggest garden ever. 
And people are kind of like, what? What's going on? Well, what comes with the big garden? Lots and lots and lots of weeds. Uh, the more water you put on them, the more they grow. In fact, we put water on our weeds so that they will grow, so, but the ground will be soft enough that we can pull them out. Um, just makes it simpler. But anyway, uh, that's one of those things, you know, that, that is harder for humanity because of Adam and Eve's fall. And they fell into subjection, the world fell into subjection to Satan. Or as 1 John calls him in that same passage, the wicked one. 1 John 5, 18, I'll read just a couple of verses there. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and here it is, the wicked one does not touch him. The wicked one doesn't touch him. Verse 19, for we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. John, hearkening back to those events in the garden, where the whole world is being influenced by the control of Satan. The whole world is being influenced in some way and has been affected in some way, some more than others, some situations more than others perhaps, but at every single level and throughout all of history, Satan has had this massive influence on mankind. His particular weapon of choice is simply this, is to get us to replace God with someone or something else. That was his, that was his temptation for Adam and Eve. Replace what God says. Did he really say? Are you really supposed to obey that? Did he, did he really say these things would happen? And so they, in disobedience, they replaced God's word with what they thought would happen, what they were tempted to believe. And Satan has that same, that same power, that same uh, weapon of choice, if you will, and it's simply this, it's idolatry. His weapon of choice, his weapon of choice to, 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 to take us out, to affect our marriages, to affect our relationships, to affect our families, to affect our churches, to affect your growth as you grow in the Lord, is to persuade you to get your mind off of God and onto something else. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And we don't live in a culture necessarily like some places in the world where, where uh, on a particular day or at a particular hour or at a particular time and in a particular way, people go to a particular spot and, and, and they bow down to this little shrine? Or do we? Or do we? You have to ask yourself that question. Or do we? Like, what are some of those things? And I've been hesitant, even in the preparation for the sermon, to just list off a list, well, it must be, you know, these ten things. Because I don't think these ten things are the same for everybody. But that's not the question of the particulars of, of the what. It's what are those things that we do bow down to? What are those things that are affecting us? What are those things that, that in some way uh, uh, bring us more joy 
more happiness, more excitement than God. Drugs, sex, TV, social media. I mean, here I am listing some of these things that just come to the top of my head. That's just a few. Right? What are some of these things that, 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 that gear us up? Another way you can analyze how things affect you is what makes you really, really, really angry when it's not there for you. When it's not there for you, and you will do anything to get that thing, you're in danger. You're in that danger zone of idolatry. I, um, I had a situation the other day. I was working on a piece of equipment. I was in my shop, and, I'm, and uh, I, had, I have this transmission jack. So it's actually pretty good size. It's for lifting the big transmissions out of the big trucks. But I was going to use it for something else. And, uh, and I'm towing it around the welding table backwards, and I bumped into something, and I thought, oh, no. And I turned, and out of the peripheral vision here on my right side, I noticed that my gigantic Craftsman tool toolbox was going away from me, but it wasn't rolling, it was falling. And I had too many drawers open, and all of the drawers with the real heavy stuff seemed to be opened that day. And that whole toolbox, this high, this big, just whoosh, cascaded, busted off five or six drawers. There's tools stretched from here to the sound booth. Um, bless my wife's heart, she went out and tried to... Uh, console me by trying to at least pick stuff up and put it in boxes and it's pretty much trashed the, i just bring that up as just a simple example is how does that affect me what is my initial reaction how do how do i view see for some guys you're really keyed in why because your tools mean everything to you and do they mean more than god maybe it's your guns maybe it's your weapons Maybe it's your cars or your trucks or your farm equipment. Uh, whatever it is, where is it in relationship uh, to you and God? Because whatever it is, wherever it sits, Satan will tempt you to elevate those things in your life and put them above God. That's how he rolls. That's how he operates. Anything in our lives that takes a higher place then our Heavenly Father can be an idol. can be something that uh, is, is ultimately out of place. See, the issue is so big to God. It's, the issue is so big to God, so important to God, that He puts it at the top of the list. He puts it at the top of the list. He devotes two commandments to idolatry. Right, The first and the second commandment are all about idolatry. It's the first commandment. <clears throat> it's the first commandment that, as he lays them out for Moses in Exodus chapter twenty, that reveals both God's passion and devotion. It's the first one with both consequences and with blessing. Let's turn there real quick in your Bibles, Exodus chapter twenty. We're just going to look at three verses, just to refresh our memory. <clears throat> what God shared with Moses, Exodus twenty. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Straight into the point. It goes on to elaborate. You should not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above, or that is on earth beneath, 
or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, those who are in idolatry, those who refuse to, to, to tear down these things that stand between them and God. That's what he's talking about. He says he's jealous for us. He's jealous for mankind in that way. But he shows mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. What are we bowing down to? What are we, what are we serving? It's been amazing to me for these half a year now almost how easy it is not to watch TV as much. To not watch... Uh, okay, I'll tell you straight up. I love the Mariners. My dad and I have been Mariners fans since the beginning. And I, so I, we record, ever since we had a satellite dish when the kids were young, we started recording the Mariners games, and we had dinner at 7.05. That was standard in the Hopkins house. That was normal. Like, if you were going to show up for dinner, show up at 7.05, we're going to eat and watch the game. And if I had to be in the tractor that night for some reason, it was on the radio. That was just standard, you know, listening to, to uh, 92.1 out of Colville. That was standard fare. I turn on the Mariners game the other day, and the taste in my mouth is horrible because I can't stand to watch a baseball game where there's no people in the stands. Right? Those guys are sitting there playing, you know, as, to get a paycheck. But there's nobody there to cheer them on. Instead, they have these stupid fake cardboard cutouts, these fat heads in the stands, not people, but they're pictures of people. And it's like, this is, this is stupid. Turn it off. Throw the TV out in the yard. I didn't do that. I was just kidding. Ah, there we go. Finally got some response. I could tell you. Oh, that reminds me of a story, Jonathan. A time where we had a big argument about, we had a big console TV. You guys remember, if you're older than maybe like 30 or 40, you remember the old console TVs? And we had this big blowout argument when we were new, you know, young married. We'd been married maybe four or five years. And uh, Tammy was frustrated with uh, not having any time. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Ladies know what I'm talking about. They're all nodding in approval. So I, in my frustration, took that big old console TV, pushed it right out the door and off the deck, and it tumbled about three times. She was never more happier. I'm telling on my own idols, on my own struggles. What are we bowing down to and how do we analyze what's the most important thing? What should the most important thing to be? Who should be the most important to us? Probably a better way to answer, to ask a question. A little tiny book in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah was one of the prophets and he gives us a great look at what an idol really does just a quick verse there Zechariah 10 2 says for the idols speak delusion the diviners envision lies and tell false dreams and they comfort in vain 
These are great descriptors of what an idol does in relationship to the people that would raise them up. And it doesn't matter what it is or how, how big or, or how small, how insignificant perhaps it seems to other people. Idols speak delusion. They're deceptive. And the diviners envision lies and they tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. And then, then here's kind of the result of all that. Therefore, the people went their way like sheep. That word went, W-E-N-D, wind, actually is how you pronounce it, is the same for wandering. So therefore, the people wander their way like sheep. They're in trouble because there is no shepherd. The reality behind idols in our lives is that they promise what they can't deliver. And they fabricate a future hope. And they give false comfort to those that would rely on them. And idols lead people adrift without any guidance. See, idols creep into our lives as a delusion of what only God was intended to supply. Let me say that one more time so you get it. Idols can creep into our lives, if we're not careful... We're not open to let the Lord examine us and follow Him. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. But idols creep into our lives as a delusion of what only God was intended to supply in our life. See, idols enter in when we think that, there's a, uh, that we can mix a little bit of the world with a little bit of following God. We won't go there today, but there's a great story about this in uh, Joshua chapter 7. I think in my notes I put Judges, but it's not Judges, it's Joshua chapter 7. Israel was having a hard time. They're, they're going up against this city Ai, and, and <clears throat> they were really, uh, Ai was really overmatched by Israel. Right? Israel had way more people. Uh, but they couldn't get a victory. They couldn't get ahead. They kept getting defeated. So God speaks to Joshua and says, uh, we have a problem. Israel has a problem. And Israel's problem is, is that they're not following my commands. So there's sin in the camp. It's kind of the word that, uh, that comes to mind. There's sin amongst the people. And you, Joshua, because you're the leader, have got to root that sin out, figure out where it is, and destroy it. Whatever it is. And so they do, they bring in, you know, all of the tribes, one at a time, you know, and then they kind of break them all down one at a time, and, and essentially, really, it's the fathers, it's the men of each household that have to give an account. And they get to this guy named Achan, and Achan said, it's me, it's us. Because in the last battle, I was tempted to grab a few things when God said to destroy him. So it's my fault. And I've got these things kind of hid underneath the carpet of my tent, hid away. They're not, it's not you know, it's, the temptation is, that's eh, not really a big deal. It's not really such a big thing. They could be beneficial in the future, some, some extra silver, silver shekels, a dress for his wife, little gold bars. Those are the, what he had tucked underneath the bottom of his tent. 
Maybe you need those. A little security for the future. Hey, what if we get old? What if we get sick? Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to provide? Here's a little something extra. Just there was a small hitch. That little something extra came at the expense of disobeying God. It came at the expense of disobedience. And Achan and his family paid a heavy toll. Paid a heavy toll. They paid with their lives for that disobedience. It's a commandment of God that he gave to Joshua was they have to be destroyed. You can't allow sin in the camp and expect to be successful. It's a great little story. It's a, it's a great read. There's a mountain of things in there. I'm just hitting the highlights. But that's the way that idols work. That's the way they work for us. Ah, we can blend a little of this, a little of that, a little bit of God on Sunday, a little bit of something else every other night of the week. No, we are created for a relationship, and we're created for affirmation from only our Heavenly Father. I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't have relationships with other people. Absolutely. I'm not saying that we shouldn't affirm other people and be affirmed by other people. Absolutely. But that deepest, deepest need within us that we somehow end up shifting onto these idolatrous things in our lives. That's what I'm talking about. Those things that make you the happiest outside of God's arena. Those things that make you the maddest. That you're not uh, submitting to God. That I'm not submitting to God. So we were created for relationship and our affirmation to get our worth from our Heavenly Father, to walk with Him, to learn from Him, to be affirmed by Him, to stand in His goodness, to sit at His feet, to serve Him joyfully, to hear these types of words, to hear these types of words, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the, the type of affirmation that ultimately we, we, we are created to receive from God alone. So when sin entered humanity, it did so by the means of trying to subvert God's plan in that way. And we're attracted to those things that give us a sense of purpose outside of God, a sense of control outside of God, a sense of security, as I mentioned a bit ago, a sense of affirmation, and a sense of well-being. And we supplement the things that only God can provide with a cheap substitute. That's what I know is true for me. That when I get pressed and, and it, I actually was like, when I knocked over my toolbox, I was kind of like, oh no! Oh no, my idol just fell. And I got lots of tools. I, I don't have, I'm not a big like expensive tool guy, but Tammy bought me a nice uh, Craftsman tool set and there's stuff in there. It's just, it's a hassle. It's kind of a hassle. And when those types of things happen, they expose, like, how much of an idol really is it in your life? Well, after I was, like, caught my breath, I just had to laugh. I was like, really? This is the way the day is going to go? You know, and stuff everywhere. Well-being, security, control. A lot of times we supplement. We have to be careful what we're... What uh, in that process, uh, we got to be careful to analyze if we are supplementing anything, I guess is what I want to say. The great news is, 
The great news is that Jesus came to set us free from these entanglements. He set us free from the entanglements of idolatry, right? And so we're going to go kind of like back through some of these same verses to, to get some of those points. In setting us free, he came to reestablish true relationship with those who would believe in him. In 1 John 5, let's pick it up in verse 20. 1 John 5, 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus. This is the true God and eternal life. That all comes right before John's little, uh, be careful, keep yourselves from idols. See, God wants us to understand him. He, he is understandable. If people tell you that, ah, you know, God's just out there, mysterious, nobody can know, you know, he's, he's like the, the guy in the Wizard of Oz, behind the veil, can't understand. There's things about God that we can't understand. I'll get it. I understand that. But the Bible is, is cover to cover full of what we can understand about God. And he's given us more than ample evidence from creation on forth, Romans says. So he's understandable. He's a God who wants us to understand him. He's a God who wants us to know him through experience. That it's not just head knowledge. How much can I memorize? How much can I just stuff between my ears and of knowledge about God? I know a lot of people that have a lot of knowledge about God, but no experience, no relationship with him in that sense. Right? If I, if I just sat here and just started spouting out, you know, <clears throat> facts and figures about my wife, uh, where she's from, who her parents are, you know, how old she is, uh, how many siblings she has, you know, uh, where she went to college, all those, all those are facts and figures. That's just knowledge. By contrast, if I talk about all of our years of marriage, all the adventures we've gone on, the road trips, the train trips, the flights, the, the raising three kids, you know, two marriages, two in-law kids. Can I say it that way? I can say it that way. If I talk to, about Tammy in that regard, that's completely different. I'm telling you about our shared experience. That's what God wants from us. That's what God has for each one of us. Is He wants to, us to know Him but he wants us to know him through experience. I talked a couple weeks ago about our spiritual DNA, uh, but God wants us to find our identity in him. Right there it says in 1 John, it says, uh, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. That our identity is not in these extra things. It's not in how you know, much of a Mariners fan I am that my identity is being a child of the king. It's being a, 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 a man of, of God, a warrior in my community, defender of my family, because that's who God's created me to be. A man who, who loves the Lord, loves the people around him, is willing to serve, right, at whatever's needed. I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about us as believers. Is that our identity? 
We're simply a child of the king. God wants us to trust in his son Jesus, of course. That's the, Jesus is the, the uh, life source for all of us, for those who would trust, for those who would believe in his name. And, of course, God wants us to discover the eternal truth that's only found in following Christ. There's a lot of debate in our world about truth, what's good for you, what's good for me, hogwash with all that. We have truth, objective truth. People try talking about this truth, that truth. Let's talk about objective truth. It's true, it's what's true for everybody. I don't want to get on a rabbit trail. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus. This is the true God and eternal life. And this all happens because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, we become that dwelling place for God. So if we step back from 1 John back into 2 Corinthians, Paul says this in regard to his rhetorical question, can there be any agreement between God and idols, between the temple of God and idols? Paul then says this, for you are the temple of the living God. So it's rhetorical in one way, but it's, it, it's a truism that he is putting before people. Do you understand, Paul says, in my, these are my words, do you understand that if you're the temple of the living God, that you can't have any place for idols. So when those things crop up, they have to be dealt with. When the weeds crop up, they have to be uprooted. Right? They have to be dealt with. When sin crops up in the family, it has to be dealt with. When idols crop up, they have to be eliminated. They have to be shot down. Where God resides, there can be no illusions. And he doesn't leave us powerless. He actually empowers us for victory over idols. Skipping ahead from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, four chapters, Paul says this in chapter 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down of strongholds, for casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Those are pretty tall marching orders in regard to things that can crop up in our lives that lead us into idolatry. But that's exactly how God empowers us when it says right there, uh, weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty. That, that word right there, they're mighty in God. That word should be underlined or highlighted in your Bible. That as a Christ follower, God is going to empower you and empower me, empower all believers in this venture of casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts 
self against the knowledge of God. It sounds like an idol to me. It sounds like something that somebody would worship to me. It sounds like something that somebody would promote to me. And bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. I'm not sure if you can quantify how many thoughts we have in a day. But are we bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ? When that toolbox fell over, for whatever reason, as soon as I gasped, I was able to think, what's my response? Doesn't happen all the time. So I'm not saying that I'm like a perfect example of bringing every thought into captivity. Because those of you that have been around me especially during maybe haying time and harvest time or when things are broke down. Those of you that have seen me stressed to the max know that I sometimes fail at this. Right? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't embark on the venture of bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. What did that toolbox really mean to me? Well, it's definitely an inconvenience. I won't lie to you there. But am I so hung on my stuff that that ruins my day? Has my little idol got enough burnish on it, or if it's spread all over the shop floor, is that going to destroy my day or not? And I had to process some of those thoughts. Actually, I just kind of shook my head, laughed, and walked away. Tammy's like, what? She, I mean, she heard this big crash, bang. <clears throat> she thought I'd probably fallen off a ladder, which would not be a crash and a bang as much as a thud. Can I tell that story? <laughs> we were trimming our trees this last fall, and I was like 40 feet up in a boom truck, and I decided, well, I'm going to take out some of these big limbs, you know, so I cut off a great big one. Tammy was outside milling around. She's on the other side of the house. Well, I've been cutting all these ones that they, they kind of fall down. They just kind of go swoosh to the ground, nice and easy, lots of limbs, or uh, leaves, and so, you know, you kind of get used to that noise. Well, for whatever reason, I trimmed these back, and I had this piece like this big around, about six feet long, I thought, well, I'll just cut the whole thing off. Woof! Down it comes. Man, she come running around. She, she thought for sure that I'd fallen out of the bucket truck. <clears throat> I think she was happy that I didn't. Oh, no amen now, huh? Amen. Oh, there, there we go. I just, I, I just wonder. It's a heavy task sometimes, but one definitely that God will empower us to do. But are we ready to punish all disobedience? That last line... Verse 6 in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians is a, uh, it's a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Are we willing to be led by the Lord in such a way that we're willing to take a stand and say, no, this has got to stop. This habit, this thought process, this thing that I'm kind of quietly going to, this thing that I've hid underneath the floor of our tent, so to speak, that it's kind of tucked away just in case, this thing that, that is supplementing God in our lives, are we willing to, like Paul says, 
uh, take that on head first? You know, that's a heavy. That's a heavy question to ask. Are we ready to punish all disobedience? And I will say that it's oftentimes, especially as a parent, uh, it's way easier to see that in other people than it is in myself. It's way easy to like, well, I've got to teach and train these kids. So I'm going to deal with their disobedience. But am I constantly in the process of analyzing, hey, are there areas where I'm not in obedience to God? Are there areas where it just seems like I'm not getting the victory, or as a family, or as a marriage, or, that we're not being victorious the way that God's created us, a lot like Israel, Joshua chapter 7. Are there areas where we're just not getting traction in life, but we're not willing to address the issue? Because at the end of that trail, you'll find that there's something that you're kind of holding up there between you and the Lord. And I know that's true because I know that's true for me. That when I refuse to go down that, that when I refuse to, to address the situation, that there's a little bit of idolatry there, I think. There's a little bit of something that's like, ah, come on, Lord, how about, I just need this for, ah, I just need, ah. And we're finding our identity in that need rather than our Heavenly Father. It's dangerous. And it's defeating. And if the enemy can defeat you, demoralize you, get you distracted, get me off the rails in my own walk or off the rails in my own marriage or in my own family, right? And do it with less, even though somehow I think I have more, he's got the win. No, no. God empowers us for victory. It means we have to take on these tasks. Will somebody go down and get Barry and Tiffany? Please, and the kids come up for a closing song. That's what I wrote on the sticky note, just in case you wanted to know. <clears throat> Idols are kind of like having a... Uh, Kind of like having a, a tube stuck into your veins. In a sense that they bleed you out. They have a tendency to bleed us out of, uh, out of energy. Out of, out of, it's a fault. It's an illusion that we have energy. Uh, but they kind of have a tendency to kind of to drain the lifeblood out of us. We have to address. For the church to move forward. For Christianity to, 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 to be real. To, to prosper. We have to address these issues. And you can, doesn't take a whole lot of reading to see that in areas of our world where the church is, is having tremendous success, uh, this is the pathway that they're embracing. They're taking down idols. They're forsaking idols. They're casting down arguments. They're taking head on the things, that, the things in life that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And they're bringing every thought into the captivity of obedience to Christ. We're going to transition on to our last song. So just to invite you all to stand with us as we turn back to the Lord and worship.
I would encourage us throughout this week to spend some time analyzing and praying, contemplating, Lord, what are those areas in my life? What are those areas in our marriage, in our family? What are those areas in, in where I work or how I relate with people that I'm not submitting to you, that I'm not addressing? And I would encourage us all to take those on head first. Amen? Amen. Amen. Turn to the Lord and worship. Thank you.